Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens and offer their tips for how you can not only get in the room, but master it just like they did. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can really help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Ann Caprera, an alumna of the political management program at GSPM, and one of the Democratic Party's most respected political operatives who has managed and consulted with candidates and elected officials at every level of state and federal government. And that's not an understatement. From her work on Capitol Hill as chief of staff to two different congresswomen, to her time overseeing the political operation for the Senate Democrats campaign arm, to her role leading the largest super PAC in the history of American politics, and not to mention the many campaigns she's managed up and down the ballot in between, and really has done it all. Currently, she serves as Chief of Staff to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, where she's got a lot on her plate all the time, but especially right now as she advises the governor on the state's response to the coronavirus crisis and ongoing economic recession. Saying she's very busy would be a huge understatement, so we're extremely grateful that she's here with us to share her wisdom, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Um, we always start at the beginning on this show, um, so let's start at the beginning with the story of, of Ann Caprera. Where does your story begin? Where were you born? Uh, what, was, what was young Ann like as a kid? <laughs> Um, I was born in the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, I grew up in a town called Radnor, which is about 15 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Um, and I went to grade school, uh, and high school there. I, um, have a big Irish Italian family. Um, the oldest of five kids. Um, so I guess you could say I've been doing politics since uh, a very early age in my life. Um, but I was definitely the first person in my family to get into politics. And I really knew that um, this was something I wanted to do from the time I was young. I consider myself pretty lucky to have had kind of the clarity of vision um, about what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I, I went to Catholic schools all throughout my uh, early years. And uh, the first real experience I had with politics, I was in the eighth grade. And our teacher, uh, Sister Mary Deborah, decided that she was going to hold a mock presidential debate in the classroom. Um, this was 1992. Um, and if you recall, uh, we had uh, Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush, and Ross Perot on the ballot. Um, and Sister Deborah said, well, there's three guys, so I'm going to pick three guys from the classroom to play the presidential candidates. And my hand immediately shot up and was like, well, what about the women? Um, and she kind of looked at me for a minute. And I think when I tell this story, people think I'm going to say, oh, naturally, I, I must have come in and figured out a way to play uh, Hillary Clinton because Sister Deborah's response to this was, well, we'll just have the wives join the husbands on stage as part of the debate, um, which would be an interesting debate format if it ever actually took place in real life. Um, <laughs> But I decided that, you know, I would take what I could get. Uh, and I actually played um, George Bush's wife uh, and uh, was sitting there the entire time, uh, really involved in all of the back and forth on taxes and what was going to happen in the country. And Pat Scanlon, who, who played George Bush, I don't think he said anything during the debate. Um, so that was the first time I was like, I really enjoy this. I think I'm kind of good at it. Uh, and this is what I want to do when I grow up. 
Um, so I went to high school, spent a lot of time, uh, you know, in government classes, writing classes, um, had a really great, rigorous education. It was an all-girls Catholic high school, which I'm actually incredibly grateful I had a chance to go to. Um, and when I graduated, I was ready to come to Washington, D.C. I really was like, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. Um, and so I got into American University and actually George Washington as well for undergraduate. Um, decided to go to American for my undergraduate degree and just had it honestly had an amazing college experience. I had a chance to intern on Capitol Hill. I spent a summer working in um, then Republican Senator Arlen Specter's office. Um, I interned for uh, the Women in Politics Institute at American. Um, just got a chance to kind of see the entire city and really work in the city. Um, something that only some of my friends know, uh, I was a Republican in college and um, when the 2000 and a 2000 presidential election came along, I was, all of our classes were kind of focused around this. Um, and I started to realize that I was really a Democrat. Uh, so I switched my party registration and, um, I've never really looked back. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I graduated from college in May of 2001. Um, I took a month or two off to travel a little bit, and then I started at uh, Cassidy and Associates, just a big lobbying firm in town, really as like the most junior person at the firm researching potential clients. Um, but my first day on the job was September 10th, 2001. Um, and so, as you well know, the world changed the day after. Yeah. Um, and that entire business, which had been focused on appropriations work, shifted to national security. At the time, they were setting up the TSA, Homeland Security. Um, I actually applied to go work at the CIA um, and got through about five rounds of interviews before they cut me. And at that point, I was like, you know, I, I lobbying is fine, but I don't love it. Um, I'm not going to do anything in law enforcement, and I think it's time that I really focus on campaigns, which had always been, and, and government, which had always been my first love. Um, and so I ended up applying via fax. I can remember actually <laughs> faxing in my resume, uh, which seems hilarious to me now, um, to Emily's list. <laughs> and they were looking for a research assistant um, for their campaigns division. And at the same time, I was applying to uh, go to the GSPM at George Washington University. So it, it's really funny to me to kind of go back and talk about this because for me, really, my campaign life, my political life started as I was starting um, going to school at night um, at the Graduate School of Political Management for campaign management. Mm -hmm. um, and I started really roughly at the same time at Emily's List. Um, which was my introduction to the campaign world. And that job was incredible um, because really what it involved, we had a, we, there was a division inside of Emily's List, there still is, that goes out and basically helps campaigns at every level get started. Um, so a lot of these women were running in congressional primaries. And the one I got sent on was uh, in Oklahoma. It was in the second district of Oklahoma, actually. And uh, which at the time was the Democratic district of mm. Oklahoma, which I can tell you um, was not really how I would define Democrats down there, <laughs> but it's, uh, it was, but I felt like I had been, I had been landed on the moon. Uh, you know, I was from suburban Philadelphia and Emily's List was like, great, nice to meet you. Uh, here's a plane ticket to, um, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, um, we had three months to try to win a congressional primary against Dan Boren, who you probably are, know yep. that name, um, yep. is the son of David Boren, who was the former senator and governor of the state. And I was working for this woman, Kaylin Free, who had been the district attorney in Pittsburgh and Haskell counties um, in uh, Oklahoma. So she had this kind of incredible background prosecuting uh, rape and domestic violence. Um, her campaign office actually sat across the street from um, 
the courthouse in McAllister, Oklahoma, which at the time they were prosecuting um, Timothy McVeigh for the mm. Oklahoma City bombing in that courthouse while the campaign was going on. Um, so my first campaign experience was like this wild, uh, <laughs> I mean, made for TV sitcom experience. Uh, you know, there was almost no money involved in the campaign. Um, Kaylin gave Dan an incredible run for his money. Um, and she really did a great job uh, in a very tough primary. Uh, ended up losing, but um, I always tell people, I think you lose, you, you learn more from your losses than your wins. Um, yeah. And so I, I can remember standing in the ballroom at the Ramada Hotel in McAllister, Oklahoma, the night she lost, thinking this is the worst feeling I've ever felt, uh, but I just want more of this, which is probably a problem I have, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I ended up, you know, I, I was back and forth to different campaigns during that time period. In the same time period, I was going to school at night at GW um, and finishing my master's degree with the GSPM. What was that? What um, was, was that great, like? It was it was hard in the sense that like I was working all the time. Um, but what was really cool about it for me was that first of all, you know, I was learning campaigns both from like the practical standpoint of my job and then spending time in class really trying to understand the different aspects of managing a race um, and really getting exposure to people in the field who were, you know, hiring people like me to go out and do jobs and um, were managing these campaigns, were managing different aspects of the campaign. Um, I remember one class I took was about, uh, basically we had to write and film TV ads. Um, and it was an incredible experience because I got to see from the conception all the way through the filming process, you know, how do you put together an ad? You know, what does it look like? What does it mean to set up a shoot? Um, what does it mean to deal with the costs associated with the television ad? What are you, are you trying to appeal to? What information are you using to write a script? Um, these are, you know, lessons that I would take with me for years when I was managing much larger budgets um, and, you know, overseeing a television ad campaign. Uh, the experience of just having the ability to see it from beginning to end um, was just I mean, it, it really invaluable. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people about the fact that in our business, in your undergraduate experience, you know, you can, you can be a political science major and you're going to learn about the history of politics and you're going to read a lot of papers about, you know, what campaign finance law means and what different, how different things have affected different moments in political history. But for the business of politics, which is really what we engage in. Mm -hmm. um, there actually isn't, at the undergraduate level, I feel a lot of um, coursework you can take to prepare yourself. I mean, if I had to go back and do it all over again, you know, I would take uh, I would take a budgeting course, I would take a, a a statistics and polling course, which I did get to take at the GSPM. Um, you know, I would spend more time probably in a psychology course, <laughs> maybe <laughs> learn some therapy. Um, but, you know, the practical world that we exist in and that we work in in politics, there are so many things that I think people are forced to learn on the job that if you even just had a little bit of background on going in um, would be helpful. And, you know, like I said, I got that chance to do that at GW um, with this master's course because, you know, like I did have a TV ad course. Um, we did have a statistics course where you know, just understanding how to look at polling, read polling, understand what it means when, you know, a sample size is, is 300 people versus 800 people um, and what that's going to mean in terms of what kind of polling results you get. Um, those things, I, I mean, you need them in campaigns. And if you're going to manage, I think you really need them. Um, and there was no other avenue for me really to get that kind of education other than a judo. I mean, at this point in your career, you've been involved in the process of hiring and promoting people within all these various organizations and offices and campaigns that you've, you've worked in over all these years. Um, when you're making those types of decisions, 
what are the the skills that you're really looking for uh, in those candidates that distinguish them one from another? And how does GSPM help students build those kind of skills that you're looking for when you're you as an employer are making those types of decisions? Sure. So the first thing I'm looking for is somebody who um, is hungry for the job because the work is hard. I mean, it's long hours. It's a lot of months of your life um, really just charging towards one day. Um, and I think that there's a certain amount of mental resiliency, uh, ability to handle risk and um, uncertainty that people need to be able to, to do this work. Um, I also think, though, that you, you really need someone who understands how to get along with people, understands how to motivate people. Um, I want to see on a resume experience working in campaigns and, and, you know, kind of a willingness to do any job and understand the business. Um, and more than anything, attention to detail um, and understanding of, you know, one mistake on a campaign can be deadly to your candidate if, if you're not careful. And so you want people that, you know, can handle the, the pressure of it all. Uh, and I will say there was one class I took it at GW at the GSPM that more than anything else uh, prepared me for what I, I was going to see and handle on campaigns. And I tell people about it all the time because I still think it was brilliant. Um, one of the last classes I took there was the, it was a capstone course and it was mm -hmm. taught by uh, the Dean at the time. And, uh, you know, we, at the front end of the class, everyone in the course had to, hike over, I think, 40 bucks. Uh, we had to get, uh, you know, and, you know, we were all kind of like, what's going on with this? But everyone was game for it. Um, and at the, at, for the last six weeks of the class, I'll, I'll never forget, he came in and he said, um, okay, I have, I think it was like $400, which as to a graduate student at the time, like that was an incomprehensible amount of money. Um, <laughs> he, he said, I, there's $400 in, in the pot. Um, you have six weeks to elect a class leader. And whoever gets elected class leader gets, gets the money. And then he just kind of like sat back. <laughs> and <laughs> I, we were, I mean, I think there were, you know, probably 30, 35 people in the class. And all of us were, you know, interning on Capitol Hill or working in a job involving politics. And Everybody had designs on you becoming president or helping elect the president. Um, and so you can imagine, you know, he kind of lands this thing that involves both an election and a pot of money on everyone's desk. And for the first couple of minutes, we just kind of all looked at each other. And the funny thing is, we, we ended up dividing into two camps pretty quickly. Um, there was... Uh, Joe Torcello, who I went to school with, who's now in Connecticut, um, and I think actually worked at um, worked at GW at one point in time. He was running on the platform of "Vote for me, and I will just give it. I will divide the money up evenly, and everybody will get an equal pot." And then Rich Lindsay, who uh, was who I ended up. I ended up as his campaign manager in the class, which I still think is funny. Um, he said, I'm going to take the money and donate it to a veterans organization. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were kind of like off to the races. I mean, once those two camps had kind of been established um, and we spent six weeks campaigning, uh, trying to convince our classmates to switch sides. Uh, we ended up winning by one vote, uh, mm -hmm. Rich's team did. And, um, and I still, I tell this story a lot of times when I teach or I talk to other people because to me it was just like the perfect example of, you know, a microcosm of a real campaign, you know, where you have two competing sides really talking about, you know, taking a, a, a purpose, which is what do you do with this cash um, and, and articulating different visions for it and then trying to convince people to vote for, for your candidate. Um, the funny thing is, I think Rich Lindsay now is a state rep in West Virginia. So, um, you know, all the people in that particular class, a lot of them ended up in politics, and I still talk to you today. But it was it was this amazing experience of like, okay, 
here's your problem, um, here's a campaign, and you got to figure out how to win it. Um, and more than anything else, I think about that class and I think about the people who kind of dove into the problem and said, okay, I just, I got to figure out a strategy. I got to figure out a, a way to get this done. Um, and those are the types of people that I want to hire. Um, right. You know, it's not so much about, you know, what school did they go to? Did they, I, I get a lot of resumes from folks who went to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and no offense against any of those schools, but I really want people who understand the practical side of politics and um, have done the work to build their own skills and being able to handle the pressure of a campaign. Yeah. Um, after you graduate from GW, I believe you, you stay at Emily's List for a few more years after that, correct? Yeah. So I was at Emily's List through 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember, 2004, we had this terrible election where we lost everything uh the democrats did and then um in 2006 uh we had a much better year wave year and i had been yeah it was a wave year it was the first actually for me it was like the first winning campaign year um Mm. so you know i i'd been through the 2000 election in college i'd been through uh, 2004, um, you know, and I, I, I actually thinking back to it now, I'm kind of amazed. I wasn't like, see you later. This is terrible. Mm. I hate losing. Um, but I finally had a, a winning election night, which was an amazing feeling. And I always, I always tell people, there's no feeling like losing on election night. And there's no feeling like winning on election night. Right. You really can't, you know, there are like these polar opposite emotional highs and lows. Um, and you, you run after them constantly because it is such an amazing feeling. Um, so I had been sent to Ohio to help work on the campaign of a woman by the name of Betty Sutton. Um, she was running in the 13th district of Ohio. That was when Sherrod Brown left to run for Senate. It, that was his seat. Um, and she won a very contested primary that Emily's List helped her out with. Um, there, I think there were 13 people in that primary. Um, and she was running against, uh, there was a former congressman by the name of Tom Sawyer in that primary. Uh, we had a lot of fun with his name during that <laughs> campaign. Um, his, <laughs> uh, Dennis Kucinich's brother was in that uh, primary. There was a state rep by the name of Capri Cafaro. I mean, it was like, it was this menagerie of characters. Right. Ohio Democrat primary. Um, she won and then ended up going on to Congress. And at the time, um, I mean, I was 25 at that point in time. And I remember thinking, uh, I want to be a chief of staff on the Hill. I just kind of decided this is something I wanted to do. And so uh, I spent a lot of time on Betty's campaign. Um, after a member is elected for the first time, they have an opportunity to go to an orientation, a congressional orientation in DC, um, where they basically sit in trainings and meetings for about a day and a half and then do a bunch of business inside their own caucus for the next day or so. There's a lot of events and parties around this, um, but it's also really where the new members kind of form and figure out who their staff is going to be. Right. Um, so I was, sta- I was staffing Betty at this. Um, and I just basically sat down with her and was like, I want to be your chief of staff. I think I'd be good at the job. And I want you to hire me. And I think she kind of looked at me like I was crazy. But, um, but she ended up hiring me. And uh, for the first time in my life, I had the opportunity really to put together a staff and um, get a congressional office together, uh, which I did. And... I worked for her um, well into 2007, and then I had an opportunity to go to Colorado to manage a congressional campaign in the fourth congressional district, uh, which at the time, if you know Colorado at all, is was Fort Collins, Greeley, Colorado, and then a sliver of Boulder County, mm-hmm. and then it was all the counties on the Eastern Plains, so it was about mm-hmm. 15 counties. So it was a very Republican district, actually. Um, and the congresswoman who was the incumbent, she's a Republican, uh, was this woman by the name of Marilyn Musgrave, who had been one of the original sponsors of the Defense Against Marriage Act. Mm. Um, she was almost universally disliked in that district. Um, 
but had somehow managed to get herself kind of reelected in these very conservative parts of the state. Um, and so, you know, this was 2008. Uh, Barack Obama was at the top of the ticket. Um, I got out there uh, in January. Actually, I literally drove into Colorado January 1st, 2008. I remember. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, it was my first outside of J.B. Pritzker is probably the best person I've ever worked for. Mm. Um, she was just really enthusiastic about the campaign, worked really hard, loved to talk and see and interact with people. Um, and uh, the, the Democratic Convention was in Denver that year. Um, so there was a lot. That, and, and I think actually 2008 was the year where Colorado really started to make the shift from being a, a red state to a purple state and now ultimately a blue state where it is now. So yep. um, so we had, we just had this really amazing, fun campaign. Um, I think everybody remembers in our business kind of the first campaign that, that's yours that you really put together. And, um, and that was that race for me. Uh, it was awesome. We won by 12 points on election night. Um, I'll never forget watching Barack Obama get elected, Betsy get elected. Um, and I actually had this moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to stay in Colorado. There's mountains here. It's so beautiful. Um, and uh, Betsy was like, that's all great. I really need you to come be my chief of staff in D.C. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I got back in the car, drove back to Washington, um, set up the congressional office all over again. Um, much different experience than working for Betty because this was a this was a very Republican district. Mm. Uh, Betty was in a very safe Democratic district, um, and so you know the first six months of that job, uh, it was we were passing the Recovery Act. Um, we voted on cap and trade. We started the debate on health care. Um, it was really the birth of the Tea Party at the time um so it was just it was a time period which, which you know i'll get to later working with for jb actually really informed the way that i've handled um legislative work and and agendas going forward because i think barack obama came in with this big legislative agenda and at the onset of his um term we had a lot of goodwill in the public we had congressional majorities. Um, and I think that there were folks in the Democratic Party, not necessarily the president or, or the White House, who were kind of like, okay, we're going to take this slow and we're going to do one thing at a time and we're going to try to get it all done. And in the process of that, um, it just ginned up the opposition to a point where, you know, we were dealing with the crazy town halls that August and um, people in the tri corner hats coming out to oppose the um, Affordable Care Act. And so um, it was just, it, but it was, it was an insanely useful learning experience for me um, to go through that and to see kind of what that looked like. Um, and actually, as we went into the second year, we could, we knew that 2010 was going to be a really difficult year for Democrats. Um, midterms usually are when you're party is in power in the White House. And um, we remember the health, the Obamacare came up for a vote after uh, we had lost the Senate race in Massachusetts. And everybody kind of thought the bill was dead. Um, and I think Nancy Pelosi actually really revived it. Um, and Bessie had been a no on that bill uh, when it first came to the House. And we sat down before the second vote and she said to me, I, I I know the political consequences of this. I, I realize I'm probably going to lose my seat because of it, but I, I feel like I have to vote for this. Um, and so I was like, okay, you know, we're just going to go figure out how to handle it. Um, and so she ended up being one of us. I think there were five members of Congress that were a no on the initial ACA bill and then ended up being a yes later on. Um, and that was, that was a really wild experience. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, I can vividly remember um, sitting in the 
House gallery watching her vote for this bill and knowing it was the right thing to do, but also knowing that this is probably the nail in the coffin for us in terms of her political future. Um, and that is exactly what happened. Um, she uh, ended up um, losing, we won by 12 points in 2008, we lost by 12 points in 2010. Um, and so she was this incredible member of Congress. I always say to people, she's exactly who people say they want in Congress, you know, ethical, uh, very responsive to her constituents, cared a lot about the job. Um, but we just couldn't overturn the national wave that year. Um, and I think, God, it was like 60 some Democrats lost in the House in 2010. Um, yeah. so when, when that was over, I, you know, Went through a couple months where I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Um, and uh, Guy Cecil, who I know we both know, um, was ending up at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee as the executive director, and they were hiring uh, political desks to help um, put together and oversee the Senate campaigns. Um, I ended up as the desk for the eastern half of the country. So, mm. um, And that was the 2012 cycle. I mean, I was... I was overseeing the Elizabeth Warren race. Um, Sherrod Brown was up for re-election. Chris Murphy up in Connecticut. Um, uh, we had a, a Senate race in Florida that year. Uh, Joe Donnelly won the Indiana Senate race that year. Um, so I had uh, Tammy Baldwin. So I had this like really awesome slate of um, Senate races and got a chance to just kind of travel the country and I would help hire the managers get the consulting team on board, um, really troubleshoot any problems. Uh, I ended up in Connecticut actually for the last three months of the election because the Chris Murphy race was unexpectedly close with Linda McMahon that year. Mm. Um, and we won, I mean, we won almost all of our Senate races in 12. President Obama was reelected. Um, things seemed to be going well. And, and then 14 uh, happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I always give Guy a hard time because I, I feel like, you know, I, I really wanted, I was the deputy political director in 2012. I really wanted to be political director for 14. And um, he basically called me up over Christmas and he was like, we have this special election that's going to happen in Massachusetts. Um, because that was, that was Ted Kennedy's seat. And um uh, Ted Kennedy's seat. That was uh, whose seat was that? I can't remember. Um, he's, but he said to me, uh, I, "I need you to go to Massachusetts." I mean, this was like December twenty seventh, I think. Mm. Um, so I ended up spending New Year's at a good portion at the beginning of the year, um, getting a marketing campaign up and running. Mm. Um, and when I came back, he said, "Oh, you know, congratulations. Um, I'm gonna." you know, a point, I'm going to promote you to be the political director of the DSCC. Um, and the funny thing is, I actually, you know, 2014 was a terrible year to be the political director of the DSCC. <laughs> um, we lost the Senate, we lost a whole bunch of races, things weren't very bad. Um, I think everybody who worked there that year, though, would tell you, and I still, these are still my close friends, people I see all the time, um, that we had just an incredible time as a team working together. Um, and so I, you know, there's nothing about that experience I would take back, except maybe I would have loved it if the a, a Obamacare website had worked better. Because <laughs> I still believe that was a huge reason we lost the Senate that year. Um, and so anyway, you know, yes, we lost. It was a, it was a tough election night. Um, you know, lose, not just losing Senate races, but losing the majority was very hard um and so i uh i went through another like soul searching I, I feel like everybody in this business after an election is over you kind of have these couple of months where you're like am i up for this again is this you know is my is this good for my mental health <laughs> for my personal life um, and you, you, you know, I always, you always have this like week or so where you go through crazy notions. I mean, I think at one point I was like, oh, maybe I should move to, to some island in the Caribbean and <laughs> teach surfing or something like that. Um, but no, you always get roped back in. So, um, I actually, I actually, after 16,
13 or after 14, I went, um, yeah, I went back to Emily's list. I, I had an offer. I had an offer from the Clinton campaign. I had an offer from Emily's list. I actually opted to go work for Emily's list and, um, running the political department, which for me was, uh, it was very, um, very nice. Cause I felt like I was coming home to this, you know, department that I had started my career in. Right. Um, and it was great. And I worked for Steffi Shriak and, um, Jess O'Connell was there at the time and they were wonderful bosses. Um, but, uh, I was about six months into that job, not even, and guy called me and said, do you want to come be the executive director of Priorities USA? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, it was, it was a very hard moment because I, I don't really typically take a job and then leave it. Um, and I just thought, you know, this is something I need to do. And um, I will say Stephanie Shriak was about as nice about it as anyone could have been. I probably wouldn't have been as nice as her. Um, <laughs> and she treated me so well that it is, it is stuck with me. Uh, whenever anybody turns to me and says, hey, I got to leave, take a job. I always think about how nice Stephanie was to me. Um, so I ended up with priorities in 16. and. You know, at the time, I, I, priorities have been around, obviously, um, previous to this, but I think that the world of super PACs just kind of exploded right. in 2015. And, um, you know, we had this simultaneous task of raising a ton of money, um, but also trying to figure out how to prosecute the case um, against who, initially whoever the Republican nominee was going to be. And honestly, for the first year no one in their right mind thought it was going to be Donald Trump um right I actually remember being in a very early meeting at priorities where we were talking about getting research books done on the different um Republican candidates and we we did commission one on Trump uh but it was kind of almost as an afterthought uh you know we we were focused on Jeb Bush and um you know Marco Rubio uh, and some of the, the more quote unquote mainstream Republican candidates. Um, and I remember our research people kind of being like, yeah, I mean, we could start the Donald Trump book, but it's going to be so insane. And, you know, uh, there's so much stuff, you know, so we were, you know, we were looking at it, but we weren't really sure that that's where everything was going to go. So um, we had to build this entire operation. Um, we ended up hiring a bunch of folks we brought in in-house digital team in um we did when it became clear that it was going to be donald trump um i you know on campaigns you always want to have good research obviously on your on your opposition you want something that you can prosecute the case against this candidate on right um with with trump there was so much stuff that we were like sitting there going, okay, how do we sift through all the potential attacks and try to figure out which ones are going to stick? Yeah. Uh, because I, I think the difficulty ended up being we would go into focus groups and listen to people talk about Trump, and they would be kind of dismissive about his financial improprieties, the, the problems he had with his business. They were just kind of like, oh, that's, you know, he's a businessman. That's how it is. Yeah. Um, but he's, and, and, they would also say he's a successful businessman, which I will say if you go into the actual research about Trump, he is not actually a successful businessman, but I will, you know, be singing that hymn until I die and, you know, half of America will never believe me. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we ended up taking, at one point we took about a hundred clips of Donald Trump speaking and saying crazy stuff. And we did an online test to see which thing resonated most with voters um and actually a clip that stood out the most was he the one where he was mocking a reporter for the new york times who happened to be um disabled mm -hmm. and uh that ended up in a lot of our ads um and so you know we 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 worked as hard as we could to kind of prosecute this case and and just stay on trump we raised a lot of money um and, I, and on election night, I, you know, like everybody else, we thought Hillary Clinton was going to the White House. Yeah. Um, I will say in a, in a lifetime of hard election night, 
Um, nothing will ever touch 2016. Yeah. I, you know, I even said last night I was tweeting as I was watching the convention um, that, you know, you, you look forward and you say, I got to, you know, we got to go do the next thing. We got to go concentrate on the next campaign. I will never not be enraged at what happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016. And it kind of always is right below the surface of any work I do in this business. Um, and so, I, you know, Guy and I were at the Javits Center uh, on election night in 16, um, about an hour or two into the night, he looked at me and said, this isn't going well. And I couldn't even like process it. I actually, you know, remember looking at him going, you're, you're crazy. Like things are going to turn around, whatever. Um, and then about another hour later, uh, we were both sitting there looking at our phones, going through, we were getting updates from our pollsters, our people. And he said, I think we need to go. And I remember saying to him, if we leave this arena, and the first woman president gives her speech accepting, you know, the presidency and I missed it. I will never forgive you. <laughs> and he was like, okay, well, we'll wait another 20 minutes. And after that, that was the point where the, the New York times needle was like swinging wildly back and forth. Um, <laughs> and we just, we left, we went and found our staff. We had to kind of run past the, the press because they were all standing there and guys are very tall guys. So, yeah. Um, he, he immediately stands out in a crowd. So, yes. uh, so I was just like, call, like run, like basically run. And, um, we left the arena and of course you lost. And, and so after that, that was the closest I've come to leaving politics altogether. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Costa Rica for almost the entire month of December to surf. Um, I almost didn't come back from Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Uh, the only reason I did was because I uh, I busted my shoulder. I was surfing and I it just ended up uh, tearing part of my shoulder, and so I was Gosh. like, okay, I gotta. Yeah, it was it was the whole thing. Um, so I was like, I gotta come back and I gotta deal with this. And um, I got back to the states and I scheduled surgery for the end of February. And and really thinking, I you know. There's not much going on right now. And uh, what could I possibly be doing in February? Uh, and the day before I went in to have my shoulder done, I got a call from um, J.B. Pritzker's uh, political consultant. And they said, hey, um, J.B., you know, he's thinking about running for governor of Illinois and would like you to come out to interview to be the manager. And I was very, I was almost dismissive of it. Um, I was just like, I don't know, guys. I mean, I, politics is terrible. And, you know, what am I, I don't know if I want to do this again with my life. And I, I've got surgery tomorrow and I'm going to be in a sling for a couple weeks. And let me go have the surgery and I'll let you know. And so I did. And, um, you know, I, I think when you work in this business, you have to have a group of people that you come back to every time you have to make a job shift because you have to make quite a few job shifts. I mean, it's not, you're not working at, uh, you know, like our grandparents did at GE for 50 years. Like right. you're, you're, you're switching your career path almost every 24 months. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I had developed this really core group of people that I, every time, you know, it was time to, to go somewhere else, do something else. Um, I would sit and talk to you and say, what do you think? And so I went back to this group during that time period and they were like, look, you know, things are crazy right now. Washington is, you know, it always kind of takes on the character of whoever's in the white house and nobody that was not appealing to anybody. Um, in my circle, at least in, in 2016. And, um, you know, JB's a really great guy. Um, you should give it a shot. You should go out there and meet him and make a decision if this is something you want to do. Um, and so I ended up getting on a plane about a week after surgery. I was still in this enormous plane. Um, American Airlines put me in a middle seat, which I'll never forget or forgive them. <laughs> um, and I flew out to Chicago and I had met JB once before. Um, he was also at election night at the Javits Center. And I literally just shook his hand and met his wife, MK, who's an incredible, awesome person. Um, 
and we kind of talked for a minute and then that was it. And I, you know, went about my life that night. Um, and so when I got to Chicago, I was supposed to meet him at, I think the interview was scheduled for like one and I landed at 1030 and I was in the city by like 1130. So, um, I called him to his assistant and said, Hey, I'm, I'm here. Just so you know, I'm, I made it. Um, I'm going to go hang out in this coffee shop in the lobby of the building that his offices were in, um, and I'll be up at one o'clock. And so I did, and about 10 minutes and sitting at the coffee shop, I got a call on my cell phone from the Chicago number, and I picked it up, and it was JB. Um, and he said, hey, can I come down and meet you at the coffee shop? And I was like, sure, you know, you do whatever you want. I'm here, <laughs> I'm here to see you. Um, and so he came down, and, um, and we talked, I think that interview went for like four and a half hours. Um, wow. We sat and talked about he, his real passion in life is early childhood education. So I spent quite a bit of time kind of reading up on um, work he had done on that. So we talked about that for a while. We talked about the campaign. We talked about Hillary Clinton. We talked about everything. Um, and unfortunately, about 10 minutes into the interview, I in my head, I was like, damn it, if this guy asked me to work for him, I'm going to have to say yes. And it's Chicago, it's March, am I really going to move here? Like, you know, um, so I left, I, I went back to the airport. And by the time I had landed in DC that night, I had a voicemail from him just saying, hey, please call me. Um, and so I did, and he offered me the job, and then I pretty much accepted right away. Um, and so I had to call my sister, because again, my arm was in this mask and I said uh, I need to move to Chicago and she's like great when and I was like Thursday and <laughs> <laughs> she's like you can't drive and I was like I know that's why I'm calling you uh can you come help me because I, I I need to she's like okay I'll come over so we ended up like packing up as much of my apartment as we could put together and driving out to Chicago and that was like March you know 9th or 10th of 2017 and uh when i got there we did a retreat with the campaign right away and jb said great i want to announce like april 10th and i was like that's you know three weeks away and right now like i'm on staff and like a couple of consultants and nobody else yeah uh, we didn't even have we didn't even like have a communications person at that point then so he's like i i hear you uh but i would like to do it on this so uh so you know the rest is kind of history. I mean, we ended up, we did announce, um, he was involved in a pretty big primary here. Um, yeah. We were running against uh, Chris Kennedy, who um, is Robert Kennedy's son. Uh, yeah. We were running against the state senator by the name of Daniel Biss, who was fairly popular here. Um, a few other candidates in the race as well. Um, you know, and look, I said to him when we started, Jimmy's an awesome you know, to, to meet him, speak to him, talk to him. He's just an incredibly engaging guy. One of the most naturally talented politicians I've ever met. He's also a white billionaire. Right. Um, and, you know, I, when we first started talking about this, I was like, look, you're, you're not actually starting at an advantage here. You know, the world is not crying out for, for white billionaires at the moment. Um, but, you know, he had so many other things about him that I think were so engaging to people and people just kind of naturally trusted him when they talked to him. Um, he's so persistent about winning people's support and, you know, just working with folks who might not otherwise have spent time with. Um, that I, and, and one of the things I said to him upfront was, if you're gonna do this, you have to be willing to do, we're going to go to every campaign forum. We're going to attend every candidate night. You're going to, at no point in time, can anybody look at you and say, you know, you, you aren't willing to do the hard work of winning hearts and minds in the primary. Right. Um, and he said, I, I don't have a problem with that. And I was like, okay, I just like, just so you have a sense of what this is going to be like, because it's going to be months and months and months of this. And sure enough, I mean, at the end of the primary he had done, I think 55 candidate forums. We've done six primary debates. Um, he'd gone everywhere in the state. Um, you know, everybody kind of looks at that race and is like, oh, you guys spent a lot of money. We did. We spent well over $100 million in the primary and general election. Um, 
but you know there are a lot of self-funders who have tried to win statewide particularly in illinois um mm. and who have lost and um i just attribute our success in that campaign both in the primary and the general election when we were running against Bruce Rauner, who's the incumbent Republican governor, to um, JB's just absolute love of people and the state. Um, he's this incredible cheerleader for everything that goes on in Illinois. Um, and so we won uh, on election night in, in 18. And um, I had a bit of time where I thought I was going to go out on the presidential campaign trail um, and really had this moment of, is this what I want to do? I, I am working for this guy who I really like. Um, you know, Illinois is not necessarily the most welcoming political culture in the world, mm. uh, but I, but I had spent, you know, a year and a half kind of battling my way into it. And um, I thought, you know, this is time. It's time for me to do this. It's it's the right. Uh, I like the people here, and maybe I should stay and work in government again. Um, and so I sat down with JV right before the election, and um, and I told him, look, I I think I want to be your chief of staff if you'll have me. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to have you. You know, let's stay. Let's do this. And, so, uh, so I did. So I ended up um, kind of putting down roots here in Chicago, and um, we came out of the gate in January of uh, 2019. You know, this the state had been run by Bruce Rauner and the Republican Party here for a really long time, uh, four years previous to that, and then previous to that, it had been Pat Quinn, and previous to that, it had been Rod Blagojevich. So, you know, there was a lot of dysfunction coming out of the executive branch of Illinois government. Um, and we just, you know, going back to that experience that I had in Congress in 2008, you know, I said to the governor, we had this really broad agenda that we laid out in the campaign. And my suggestion would be that we just go for broke and try to get it all done, or as much of it done as we can in the first, you know, 12 months. Mm -hmm. And so we laid out that session and, and legislative session in Illinois goes from January to the end of May. Um, we passed a $15 minimum wage, a $40 billion infrastructure bill. Um, we legalized cannabis um, and decriminalized uh, marijuana crimes. Um, we passed the state budget, which was a very big deal because the state had gone two years without a budget because of the back and forth between the um, Republican governor and the Democrats in the legislature. Um, and uh, we ended up passing a big pension um, consolidation plan. Um, and then we also put the fair tax on the ballot and the fair tax basically, uh, we're, Illinois has a flat tax rate, um, which means, you know, as JB would say, he pays the same tax rate as, you know, a janitor. Right. And so uh, we managed to pass, um, we managed to get the General Assembly to pass a ballot amendment um, to, to amend the state constitution to allow for a uh, progressive income tax. And that's going on, that's on the ballot in November. So uh, we came out of that and I was like, wow, great first year. Like we kind of checked off the, almost the entire list of campaign promises, which is obviously what you want to have happen um and we were gearing up for you know this year and this legislative session and um looking at criminal justice reform looking at some energy legislation um you know there were a couple of other fiscal items um and then COVID hit yeah. and um you know we had just started our legislative session really um and I remember it was the beginning of March and, uh, you know, JD, he's a, he's an avid reader. Um, he gets up, you know, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. I do not get up that early. I'm usually like <laughs> 6 30. And by the time I'm up, usually he has read all the newspapers and every like interesting article about things that are going on in the world. Um, and I, the joke 
we kind of have is like, cause he'll call me. He, he's very good about waiting until like a reasonable hour to call. And he'll be like, oh, you know, did you read the 24 page article about uh, you know, vaccine remedies in the New England Journal of Medicine? And I'm like, no, it's 7 a.m. Like I've been <laughs> asleep. <laughs> so, but he's, he's just an avid consumer of information. So when COVID first started to hit, um, he was really on top of it. I mean, he was kind of uh, in our office, in our meetings, like this is getting bad. We need to start preparing. Um, nobody, I think, had a good sense of just how bad things were going to be. Um, and as we got into the middle of March, um, which is St. Patrick's Day here in Chicago, and Chicago is very, very serious about St. Patrick's Day. Um, usually we die the river and we have about a million people on the streets of the city um, partying for St. Patrick's Day. And this was kind of looming just as the the crisis was hitting speed um and i mean we both looked at each other and i was like yeah, we can't have this parade we can't have we can't die the river we can't have a million people on the streets of chicago uh and he's like i know and so you know he called the mayor we ended up canceling all the st patrick's day events um shortly after that we had to make the decision to close schools down around the state and then shortly after that i think we were the second state in the country to go to a stay-at-home order um, and I mean, those were terribly hard decisions. Um, yeah. and I don't think I can think of a time in my career where the weight of the, the, the bad choices that you're faced with weighed on me more heavily. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had, we were working with a modeling team out of the university of Illinois and they came to us very early on uh, with a presentation and said, look, if you take you know, kind of severe mitigation efforts, you're looking at this number of people dying. And if you don't take this, the severe mitigation efforts, you're looking at this many people dying, much more than the first one. Um, and so in some ways, the choice was very stark and very clear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're also cognizant of this is people's lives, this is their businesses, this is the school year. Um, these are so many things that affect people in really intimate and personal ways. Um, and we just made the decision very early that we, we could only have one North star. Like you can't, in this crisis, you can't, you can't have multiple things you're trying to achieve, to be honest. Like you can, you can only bow to one master in this particular, um, decision-making tree. And we just decided it was always going to be how many people can we save? How many lives can we and leave it at that and always be guided by that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we went through a really hard political time, I would say, in April and May, as well as like actually being really hard for everybody in the state because I think folks really didn't have a full grasp of how bad it was. Um, and there was a huge movement here, as there were in many other states, to, to reopen the state and just, you know, right. kind of come back and do business and like, you know, let people live their lives. And we, we held pretty firm on that. Um, you know, I, we had developed a plan that involved a kind of 28 day window between phases um, where we basically said, look, we have to see the numbers going down for almost a month before we're willing to, to go to another phase of opening up. And um, we got a lot of pressure to change that. We decided not to change it. I said to the, um, I said to the governor, you're going to be judged in months and years. You're not going to be judged in days and weeks. So like, you know, just remember that as we deal with all of this and, you know, he, he stood firm. Um, I think as we got into June and people saw what was happening in Arizona and Florida and other places, they were very glad that Illinois had taken the steps it had taken. Um, But now we're here in this weird world we live in right now. Um, I think we're all bracing for the fall and, um, are ve- we're all very concerned that we're going to see a resurgence in cases um, and have to kind of go back to where we were in the spring. Yeah. Um, certainly hope that's not the case, but um, but I think a lot of this right now is just dealing with the reality that we're in, um, dealing with the the, 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 the the hand that you've been dealt, right? And, and not um, trying to do anything different. Yeah. 
last question for you. You've had this long career uh, where you've, you know, so far, very successful, done all these different things. There are a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career, a career that's, you know, like yours. In your experience, if you were going to talk to somebody who's, you know, coming up behind you, would like to follow, follow in the footsteps, footsteps of an Ann Caprera, for example, um, what have you found to be the most important ingredient in your career? What you know, or is it who you know, or is it some combination of both? <laughs> it's definitely some combination of both. Um, I think first and foremost, the experience of coming to school in Washington, D.C. was critical for me, um, both in my undergraduate and in my graduate work. Because, you know, I think there are a lot of competing influences on students nowadays and what they're looking at and what kind of school they want to have on their resume. And I always tell kids, look at where you, like, look at the city you're going to be in or the state you're going to be in. How does that revolve around the career that you're interested in? I mean, I got a chance to come to Washington and really spend the four years of my undergraduate experience and the two years of my graduate experience going to school, learning about the business that I was interested in working in, and also being able to work in that business because I was in the city where it was being done. Um, and so that was a huge portion. I mean, I, I felt like when I graduated uh, from both AU and GW that I had a leg up on students across the country because I had this resume of internships and uh, job experiences and, and, you know, working with people. Um, and I would say particularly the opportunity to meet and form relationships with your fellow students um, at these schools. I mean, I still talk to, see, interact with um, kids I went to school with at American and kids I went to school with at, at GW, um, who are all in the business that we're in. And I mean, even to the degree of like, there are folks that I went to both of those universities with who are now reporters for national news outlets who, um, you know, they get, I, I, they call me for quotes. I give them exclusive information because of this relationship that we had mm. going back to where we went to school. And, um, and then I also think, you know, there understanding that you need to prepare yourself really if you're going to work in politics if you're going to work in government to go out into the larger world um you know there's a time to be in washington dc and learn and study and and build your relationships and then there's a time to say okay you know i'm young i don't have a lot of things tying me down um i am going to go travel and work on that campaign or um, go see this part of the country and, and learn the political culture there um, you know, I, I, working for Emily's List out of the gate, like they sent me all over the country. I mean, I worked, obviously worked in Oklahoma, I worked in Florida, I worked in Pennsylvania. Um, I went to Hawaii at one point in time. I, you know, I was Nevada. I was all over the country. And, you know, I would drop in on these campaigns for a couple of weeks or a couple of months at a time and really got to see how they worked and the different, you know, ways in which you could be a campaign consultant or a political person. Um, and that experience was just second to none. So, you know, look, I think it's it's where you are, it's what you learn, it's who you know. Um, I also say that to people though, like who you know will get you in the door for an interview. Mm. Um, it's never, almost never gonna get you the job. Right. Um, and so it is about what you know, it is about what you bring to the table. Um, you know, I, I've had people look at my resume and say, oh my gosh, like, oh, you have a graduate degree in this particular field that you want to be in. Mm. Um, and, and that's important to them because, you know, I think for people outside of our business, and a lot of times that's the candidate themselves, mm -hmm. um, This the, the world we operate in is completely opaque. Like they don't, you know, they're like, how do I figure out who's going to be good at this work, you know? Right. And so I just had this feeling really early on that I had to do everything I could to burnish my credentials so that people would take me seriously. And, um, and frankly for myself that I just would have a sense of, you know, what I was getting into and what I needed to do. Yeah. So that's a long winded answer to your question, but. Wise words, wise words from a wise woman, Anka Prera. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to 
to share your wisdom. Uh, tell us tell us the stories of, of your path, and uh, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Steve. Happy to talk to you.